Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Earlier this month, we hosted an interesting program on the Fourth Amendment. Leading scholars discussed the Fourth Amendment, which guarantees against unreasonable search and seizures, and how its promises translate to today's digital world. In this panel, Jeff sits down with two of America's leading experts on warrants and subpoenas to explore the history of the Fourth Amendment. He's joined by Professor Laura Donahue, Director of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown, and Professor Chris Slobogan of Vanderbilt, author of Privacy at Risk, The New Government Surveillance and the Fourth Amendment. Here's Jeff. Chris and Laura are both uh, America's leading experts on the history of warrants and the history of subpoenas. And those are obviously two crucially important topics, much mooted in the country today. Each of them in turn will give us a, a, a brief encapsulation of their learning about the history of warrants and subpoenas. I'll ask them a few questions and then we'll, uh, they'll have a conversation between the two of them. So Laura, I think we will begin with you and please tell us about the history of warrants. Okay, uh, can we get the slides up? Thanks very much, and thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. Uh, I'd like to be a little bit provocative, actually, today. We're going to talk about the history of the Fourth Amendment, but my basic suggestion for our conversation is that the way the doctrine has evolved is utterly ill-suited for a digital world and for the digital world in which we find ourselves. So my suggestion is that in fact what we're seeing in terms of Fourth Amendment doctrine is that the way we have traditionally protected the rights that we protected at the founding, uh, that is specifically through public versus private space, through private versus third party information, through the distinction between content and non-content, and domestic versus international, that all of these are breaking down. And they're breaking down in four ways. The, the the lines between these categories and Fourth Amendment doctrine are becoming blurred. Information that we would have protected, even at the founding, is no longer protected. Categories that we have now don't capture really important privacy interests that all of us have as citizens. And there is no use restriction. So if this information is collected at the outset, there is no Fourth Amendment doctrinal restriction on how that is then used, that information. In my view, this is one of the most serious risks that we're facing going forward for rights in the United States. So let me just talk for a moment before turning it back over about what the meaning was of the Fourth Amendment. So first I want to talk about a general warrant. What is a general warrant? Well, a general warrant is basically a document that's issued by the court or the executive, which gives officials the authority to search for and to seize private documents without any prior evidence of wrongdoing. There's no oath, there's no particularization in terms of the person or place to be searched or the things or property to be seized. Uh, it's basically used as a way to get information that can then be used to prosecute somebody. Now for centuries prior to the American founding, in England, this was roundly rejected. So if you look at Cook's writing during the, during the reign of Charles I, the famous English jurist, Edward Cook, he argued in Parliament against using these, even when threats to the realm, what we identify as national security now, were of issue. If such instruments be used, he said, per mandatum domine regis, or for matters of state, then we are gone, we're in a worse case than ever. If we agree for matters of state, then we shall leave Magna Carta and do what our ancestors would never do. Cook returned to these arguments in his institutes. Uh, he wrote that general warrants 
were against Magna Carta. Charles I, in this twist of fate, actually seized Cook's Institutes using a general warrant. Um, nevertheless, it became cemented into English law. So Matthew Hale, he's an intellectual giant, most famous really for his history of the common law of England. He noted in Historian Practicum uh, Coronae, or the History of the Pleas of the Crown, that a general warrant to search in all places is not good, but only to search in particular places. And as we move through English history, all of the major cases that come down, like nor uh, regarding North Britain number 45, uh, they actually cite back to Cook and Hale to basically say that general warrants were an anathema to the British Constitution. So when the colonists left England and came to the United States, they really expected that these, this right, this protection against general warrants, would travel with them. Uh, William Pitt, uh, the elder, aka Lord Chatham, kind of a darling of the American Revolution, as he explained in Parliament, every man's house is called his castle. Why? because it's surrounded by a moat or defended by a wall? No, the poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the forces of the crown. Its roof may be frail, it may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storm may enter, the rain may enter, but the king of England may not enter. All his forces dare not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. So there was this idea that the, a man's house was his home, and while he was in his home, he was as well guarded as a prince uh, in his castle. But in America, Britain started using general warrants, and particularly writs of assistance, to try to get individuals served with a writ of assistance to help them to find evidence of criminal wrongdoing. And one of the most famous cases in American history then becomes Otis's uh, case, when uh, Otis stands up and rails against the use of these warrants. It's known as Paxton's case. In this case, Otis said, I will to my dying day oppose with all the powers and faculties God has given me, all such instruments of slavery on the one hand and villainy on the other as a general warrant is. So John Adams, who was present at Paxton's uh, case, at uh, Otis's oration later said that was the first shot of the revolution. Then and there, the child liberty was born. So when it came time to write the new constitution uh, in 1787, one of the greatest objections to it was that it did not include a prohibition on general warrants, that even as the Articles of Confederation had fallen from use and we had strengthened the new federal government, there was no restriction on the federal government in terms of national government in terms of general warrants. This was the really the focus of some of Patrick Henry's discourse, his kind of amazing diatribe against the Constitution if you go back to the ratification debates in Virginia. Uh, and so here in Pennsylvania, in Virginia, in a number of states at the founding, the states had adopted a prohibition on general warrants, and they did so in language that's eerily close to what we now have in the Constitution. So when Madison was entrusted with writing the Bill of Rights, he promised to outlaw general warrants. And the language of the Fourth Amendment thus reads, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizure. And by unreasonable, it meant against the reason of the common law. I didn't mean this relativistic post-cats kind of uh, putting the court in the middle of social determinations of what's reasonable or not reasonable. It meant against the reason of the common law, which meant a prohibition of general warrants and a requirement that 
warrants be so particular as to name the person or place to be searched and the thing or property or persons to be seized. And so the Fourth Amendment of the US Constitution, in light of this history, really is most properly understood and read as a prohibition on general warrants on the one hand, and at the same time, a list of the particulars that have to be satisfied for a specific warrant to actually be valid. So that's, that's the basic underpinning for the Fourth Amendment. Now what's happened in terms of the doctrine, and I'll just conclude with, with a quick uh, statement about how this has evolved, is that in, as you know, the, the types of interests that the founders were worried about, the things that they really wanted to make sure were protected, were things like liberty. Right? They wanted to make sure that there, was, there were no constraints, that the, the insight of the Panopticon, Jeremy Bentham in 1787, the same year we're drafting the Constitution, he's writing about the ultimate prison, which is where every individual is under observation constantly. And it's not that somebody's going to do something to them, it's the idea that you self-regulate when others are watching you, when others see what you're doing, what you say and what you do changes. And the founders were writing in that era where they were aware that the liberty constraint is actually a very important one and not actually self-constraining yourself in what you think and what you write. They wrote about the humanistic value of this, the importance in the context of general warrants, that it was important to be able to come into ourselves and our own as human beings in terms of our spiritual and intellectual and personal relationships. Uh, as a social matter, to be able to mediate our social boundaries outside the gaze of the government. They were concerned that giving the government access to your friends could put you in a compromise position and they wrote extensively about how giving the government the power to use a general warrant would allow the government to collect information against you and to target political opponents and to be able to build cases and make it look as though you were guilty. And so in order to head this off, we have this prohibition on general warrants. Now over time, there have been ways in which we have tried to make these interests, um, give, them, give them protections within the constitutional doctrine of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, pretty much since Katz, and we can talk about this later, I think we've increasingly failed to do so, particularly in light of digitization. I'll leave it there. Wonderful, thank you for that. Uh, extremely uh, inspiring and uh, uh, insightful presentation. So a, a few questions. Um, you quoted uh, Otis's denunciation of the rich of assistance, which Chief Justice Roberts quoted in the Riley case uh, very beautifully, and, and along with Adams' statement that at that moment the child revolution was born. And Otis said that the goal was to avoid both slavery and villainy. What was the difference between the two? So, sorry, say that again? O Otis said that uh, general warrants would allow the king's agents to engage in either slavery or villainy. Slavery what, on the, the one difference? hand and yeah. villainy on the other, yes. So the idea of, uh, of slavery is you could manipulate and control people if you know enough information about them. You could uh, hold them hostage to that. You could, in fact, threaten to reveal certain sensitive information if they don't act in a manner consistent with what you would like to see from them. So if you don't toe the line, if you don't support them on certain measures, if you don't um, 
organize a, a meeting at their behest, that this was a way of, of actually controlling individuals. Villainy, on the other, was a way of actually getting, it was pretty much what happened during the McCarthy era, right? So during COINTELPRO, getting into people's lives, going to their employers, um, getting them fired for ostensibly being communists at the time, uh, putting false information out there, putting, uh, going to the newspapers and putting up information that wasn't true, moving, moving money between bank accounts to make it look like individuals are engaged in nefarious activities. If you don't have access to all of this, you can't actually work in, this, in these instrumentalities in a way to cause really in a very underhanded, unprincipled, concerning way, interference in the private lives of individuals in a way that has repercussions for their social status, for their political uh, actions, for their ability to engage socially. Absolutely fascinating. And that really helps encapsulate both how a fear of the crown retaliating against its critics was the core of the amendment, but also a fear about other forms of social control. So if the paradigmatic examples of the Fourth Amendment violators are John Wilkes, author of North Britain 45, and the colonists who are the victims of the general warrants, um, what were the central doctrinal changes that undermine the principle you identified, namely the executive cannot intrude on an individual unless specified criteria are met? So the home historically stood as a proxy for this. And so one of the first questions to present the United States was what about papers when they leave the home? So if the home is a proxy for protecting the social, intellectual, humanistic, and liberty interests of individuals, then what happens when your papers then leave? And in Ex Party Jackson, the court said, no, your papers, when they're being carried through the post, are as protected as if they're sitting in your desk in a locked desk inside your, inside your den. Your familial relationships, your intimate uh, relations with with whoever it might be, a business about uh, your, your, your commercial papers that was actually included at the founding. So business records were also private. They were not for the government to know what all of your business records were. So in Ex Party Jackson, which dealt with a lottery, uh, there was a, a question as to whether something in a closed envelope being sent through the post was protected, and the court said, yes, it is. Olmstead was kind of the next major shift, which is, well, what if your voice leaves your home? Because now with wire communications, something that you might might say privately to somebody else in your home might leave the home. And initially the court said, well, no, it's actually physically leaving the home. But then eventually the court reversed this, right? And they said in cats, no, when that voice leaves the home, if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy and it's one society is willing to recognize as reasonable, then you have an expectation of privacy there with cats. Now, the mere evidence rule, I think, is, is very probative here. So until 1967, uh, in fact, uh, in a case called Warren versus Hayden, this was just before, so a few months, four months before cats came down, in this case called Warden versus Hayden, prior to that, Everything you did was protected, so you couldn't get a warrant to obtain your letters. There, there couldn't be, it was only the fruits and instrumentalities of crime. That's how private papers were. That's how private and how important the founders felt the types of things that you entrust to your friends, to your social contacts, uh, to your acquaintances, to your colleagues, to your business partners, that that was so private, you couldn't even use a warrant to get that information unless it was evidence of the crime itself, or the, the fruit, the, sorry, the, the fruit of the crime, so like the, the picture that you stole, or the instrumentality, the smoking gun that you used, right, to kill somebody. Outside of that, you could not just cast about and see what was going on in people's lives, even when there was a crime. You couldn't obtain that for evidence. 
In Warden Versailles, this fell away. And even as they said, as they changed that doctrine, they said that they were concerned that the government would then feel entitled to go into your homes to find out more about your private lives. You know, we're now 50 years on from that, and we are so far down that road. It's it's really quite extraordinary in light of the original understanding of the types of interests that the Fourth Amendment was meant to protect. Warden versus Hayden is such a crucial case, striking, written by William Brennan, not thought of as a pro-government uh, judge, but that, as you say, centrally undermined the founding era protection for private papers. Uh, tell us, finally, what about the uh, third uh, party doctrine and the uh, you noted also that there are no use restrictions on data, unlike in Germany, for example, where data seized for one purpose cannot be used for another. Uh, to what degree did the, 30, the third party doctrine undermine the use restrictions that were taken for granted at the time of the founding? Yeah, so third party doctrine, so I, in full disclosure, I just wrote an article for the Supreme Court Review um, really decrying uh, both cats and third party doctrine as many on all sides of the illogical spectrum really see this as just a, a complete and utter um, usurpation of the protections that otherwise would be afforded to individuals. And this really came out of two cases, Miller and Smith. Um, Smith was this case where um, Patricia McDonough was walking up in Baltimore and uh, somebody mugged her and took her purse. And when she was being mugged, she saw this 1975 Monte Carlo car right sitting there and she went back home and somebody called her on the phone and made threatening remarks to her and told her to go out on her porch. And that same car, the Monte Carlo, drove slowly by her home. So the, uh, she called the police. The police were in the neighborhood. They saw the car. They ran the plates. It belonged to a guy named Michael Lee Smith. And so they went to the phone company and they said, look, we have this really cool device, a pen register trap and trace. Uh, you know, back then, telephone calls were recorded by the, um, by the number of minutes, you know, domestic or international. So they didn't have the capability to record the numbers that you call and the numbers that call you. But the phone company said, you know, that's okay. You can put that on the line. And so they did. And sure enough, he called Patricia McDonough. The police used that to, as a, to get a warrant to go into his home, and there they find her purse, the telephone book turned down to her name, um, and the man that actually has, has mugged her. So when it came to trial, the court said, uh, um, sorry, Michael Lee Smith said, oh no, this is a violation of my privacy because the numbers I call are very private. They can tell a lot about a person. And the court said, no, it's not private. And they, they borrowed from informant doctrine, which in Katz, Justice White was at pains to point out that the informant doctrine had been untouched. And that doctrine, which had developed really in a mafia context, was that if you tell somebody something, you don't have an expectation of privacy that that information will, in fact, be kept private. And so for a telephone, the, you know, the old way was somebody would sit at a switchboard and move the, move the wire cherry seven calling you know, Roger six, and you would move the wire over. So you were telling that person who you were calling, so you didn't have a privacy interest. Now fast forward, and the problem is that you know, in an age of Get Smart and Star Trek, where this stuff is like fantastic as though it doesn't exist, and talking through a shoe phone, portable shoe phone, is, is laughable. You know, now we're in an age where all of us have cell phones, and 24 hours a day, seven days a week, those phones actually record a lot of information about us. They record not just who we call and who calls us, but where we go, what we do, and whom we're with when we do so. And that's a very different world. 
world. So on the one hand, Claire Egan, uh, Judge Egan writing for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, because this is an area where we see this come up a lot, she says, look, zero plus zero is still zero. So if under Smith versus Maryland, third party doctrine, when you give records to a third party, you have no privacy interest. The fact that the uh, <laughs> National Security Agency collected almost all Americans telephony metadata for almost 10 years uh, in order to try to find evidence of illegal activity with no prior suspicion of illegal activity, no oath or affirmation, no particularity, no probable cause demonstrated, something that looks a lot like a general warrant, well, under third-party doctrine, it's completely allowed. So third-party doctrine, I think, has been foremost, which is why Jones, Riley, and then most recently Carpenter, I think, have been so important. Um, Third-party doctrine, more than anything else, I think, has really undermined a lot of the Fourth Amendment protections, that in, in conjunction with technology. Thank you for stressing the centrality of the third-party doctrine. It is important that it was not applied uh, most recently in Carpenter. I had a remarkable experience right before Carpenter came down. I gave a speech essentially saying, as you did, that the application of the third-party doctrine in Carpenter would be like a general uh, warrant and Smith shouldn't apply, and this was at the Chautauqua Institute, a guy got up in the front row and said, I argued Smith, and I agree it should not be applied in this case. That's not what we had in mind at all, and in fact, the court, in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, refused to apply it, seeming to understand the importance of preserving the original principle that private papers cannot be lightly seized without particularity. That was great. Thank you so much for that. And now, Chris Logan, I'm so eager to hear you on the history of subpoenas. Back in the mists of the 1990s, I had wondered uh, during the Clinton impeachment how it was that it was possible to issue a subpoena for private diaries, uh, since the protection of private diaries in the age of John Wilkes was the quintessential example of an unreasonable and unconstitutional search. And I had the chance to ask uh, Judge Starr, Ken Starr, that in the middle of the investigation. How, how, how is that consistent with the original understanding? And he said, we decided to our enterprises it. And our enterprise, of course, is the case that says as long as the papers are reasonably related to a legitimate criminal investigation, they may be seized. Tell us how that principle, which seems to be the antithesis of the original understanding, which held that you can't seize private diaries by subpoena, uh, came about, what was the evolution that made that remarkable dilution of the Fourth Amendment? Yeah, I'd be possible? glad to answer that question. Um, I do have PowerPoints, but given Laura's experience and uh, the fact that I want to protect my neck, I'm <laughs> just going to sit here and tell you what the PowerPoint slides uh, revealed. And I think the discussion of uh, personal papers segues very nicely into what I want to talk about. I am going to talk about the history of subpoenas. Um, as you know, hundreds of thousands of subpoenas are issued every day by judges, administrative agencies, uh, prosecutors, and even individual agents. And we even have hybrid subpoenas uh, that allow personal papers to be obtained on less than relevance. But the central point about subpoenas, as Jeff just emphasized, is subpoenas can be issued on a showing of mere relevance. They don't require a showing of probable cause. And yet subpoenas allow law enforcement to get access to financial records, to communication records, to medical records, and a whole host of other sources of information. Now, how did that come about? How is it the case the government can get a hold of all this kind of personal information on a mere showing of relevance, on a showing that does not come anywhere near probable cause, which we associate with warrants? Well, I think to answer that question, you have to understand the history of target subpoenas. Those are subpoenas 
that are executed against the target of an investigation. Now, today it's true, most subpoenas are third-party subpoenas, but I think in order to understand where we got where we are today, how we got to where we are today, we have to understand the history of target subpoenas. Uh, the first subpoenas that we know about occurred uh, in the late 17th century in the reign of Charles II, but those subpoenas were issued in civil cases. It was very clear that in criminal cases, a subpoena could not issue to command documents from a target, from an individual. And so, for instance, you have cases from the King's Bench which said this, that a court may not, quote, make a man produce evidence against himself in a criminal prosecution. That's what Laura was alluding to a little bit earlier. That's a very strong statement. It's obviously language that presages the Fifth Amendment. And that's one of the important points I want to make, that the history of subpoenas is more history of the Fifth Amendment, not history of the Fourth Amendment. And the Fifth Amendment has just as much of a role to play here as the Fourth Amendment. So that's what the King's Bench said. And in fact, by the time the Fifth Amendment was drafted, it was clear that under the common law, there was an absolute prohibition on compelling the production of documents from an individual. Now, in this country, there were some scattered cases in the 19th century that suggested otherwise. But then in 1886, we get the decision of Boyd versus the United States, which all of you know about. And in that decision, the Supreme Court held that the subpoena issued in that case violated both the Fifth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment, because the subpoena required Boyd to testify against himself um, in the guise of documents, and the Fourth Amendment, because that compulsion of papers uh, was an unreasonable seizure of his private documents. Now, interestingly, um, this is a very strong statement of the protection of papers because Boyd actually was not subject to criminal sanctions. He was only subject to civil sanctions, which at least technically means that he did not have the protection of the Fifth Amendment, and yet the Supreme Court said the Fifth Amendment applied here. And in terms of privacy, the document demanded by the subpoena in Boyd was a mere business invoice, which is hardly the most private kind of document one can imagine, and yet the court said that this subpoena was unconstitutional on both Fifth and Fourth Amendment grounds, a very strong statement by the court. But within 20 years, the court had begun the decimation of Boyd, and the most important case here is Hale versus Henkel, decided in 1906, which involved a subpoena of a corporation, and the Supreme Court said the subpoena was valid despite Fifth and Fourth Amendment claims made by the corporation. Fifth Amendment didn't apply because corporations are not the person referred to in the Fourth Amendment. They're not the type of person referred to in the Fifth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment did not impose any restrictions unless the subpoena was so sweeping that it would basically put the corporation out of business because it had to surrender all of its papers to the government. Of course, in this digital age, that's not a problem. So in other words, no Fifth Amendment protection for corporations and virtually no Fourth Amendment protection. As the court summed it up in the 1946 case of Oklahoma Press versus Walling, um, with respect to corporations, the Fifth Amendment affords no protection by virtue of the self-incrimination provision, whether for the corporation or for its officers, and the Fourth Amendment, if applicable, at the most guards against abuse only by way of too much indefiniteness or breadth. And four years later, we get my favorite quote from the Supreme Court in this area. It said, a subpoena is valid, quote, even if one were to regard the request for information as caused by nothing more than official curiosity. Now, I don't know what the definition of official curiosity is, but I think if you had to define it, it's probably even lower than relevance. And yet that was a statement by the court in Morton Salt. Um, but what has seldom been noted about these cases that I just described is they all had to do with corporations, not with subpoenas aimed at individuals, and aimed at individuals to get their personal papers. And the court thought this distinction was very important. So for instance, in Hale, the court said, quote, there is a clear distinction between an individual and a corporation 
um, in cases involving document demands because a corporation is a creature of the state, while the individual, quote, owes no such duty to the state since he receives nothing therefrom beyond the protection of his life and property. In Oklahoma Press, the other case, one of the other cases I mentioned, the court repeated that decision applied, quote, merely to the production of corporate records and papers. And in Morton Salt, the court said, quote, corporations can claim no equality with individuals in the enjoyment of a right to privacy. And notice that use of the language right to privacy. In essence, what the court was saying here in these cases is corporations have no Fifth Amendment right, but with respect to individual papers, the Fifth Amendment creates a zone of privacy that protects those papers. And that, in fact, was the phrase, zone of privacy, the court later used in Griswold versus Connecticut. And that idea continued through to the 1970s. So we get the, the Dionysio case in 1973 where the court said that a grand jury, quote, cannot require the production by a person of private books and records that would incriminate him. Now again, that's a pretty stunning statement as recently as 1973. On the other hand, there were rumblings against this idea that the Fifth Amendment protected private papers. So in 1964, nine years before Dionysio, the, very, the little known case, Ryan versus the United States, upheld a subpoena for an individual's tax records and didn't even mention the Fifth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment. And then in Couch, um, Couch versus the United States, um, this decided the same year as Dionysio, uh, the court said, a person cannot reasonably claim either for Fourth or Fifth Amendment purposes an expectation of privacy and tax records. Now, it would have been possible to distinguish Ryan and Couch from Dionysio by saying, well, both Ryan and Couch involve tax records which you could say are regulatory records of the type that were described in the corporate decisions that I was talking about earlier. But as all of you know, in just a few years after Couch in Fisher versus the United States, the Supreme Court did away with virtually all Fifth Amendment protection for all types of documents, because what Fisher said is the Fifth Amendment has nothing to say about intrusions into privacy, it has nothing to say about the zone of privacy, and is only about preventing coercion. So that means that unless the act of production that's compelled by subpoena is both incriminating and testimonial, there's no Fifth Amendment protection of documents because the content of documents are voluntarily created. So note what the impact of Fisher is. Fisher says that individual, individually possessed documents are entitled to no more protection than corporate records. And corporate records had received virtually no protection since Hale versus Henkel. Now, the court did recognize this, that it was uh, surrendering a lot of protection of individual records. And so in 2000, United States versus Hubble, uh, it did state that if the subpoena requires the individual to, quote, take the mental and physical steps necessary to provide uh, uh, the prosecutor with an accurate inventory of the many sources of potentially incriminating evidence sought by a subpoena, the Fifth Amendment would be violated. So what Hubble said is that the prosecutor does have to provide some particularity with respect to what the subpoena is trying to obtain. But it's very unclear what Hubble means. In fact, a lot of target subpoenas are still being issued based on showings of mere relevance. So Hubble doesn't put much of a dent in Fisher's holding, though it is out there uh, for defense attorneys to argue. Now, of course, one, you might well be thinking, what does this have to do with the typical subpoena today? Because the typical subpoena today is not a target subpoena. It's a third party subpoena, right? And the Fifth Amendment has no role to play, never has had any role to play with respect to third party subpoenas because a third-party subpoena doesn't require the third party to self-incriminate, right? It only requires the third party to produce documents that might incriminate someone else. So the Fifth Amendment provides no protection in the third-party subpoena situation. And this wasn't a big deal a century ago or two centuries ago because most personal information was not maintained by third parties. 
But of course, we're in an entirely different situation today, as Laura was talking about. All of our personal information is, is in the possession of third parties. And yet, not only does the Fifth Amendment not provide any protection, neither does the Fourth Amendment provide very much protection in this situation. And it's not just because of Miller and Smith, the third party doctrine, which engages in this very weird reasoning that you assume the risk that if you surrender information to a third party for one purpose, it, will be, it can be given to the government for another purpose. Put Miller and Smith aside, it's also because in Hale versus Henkel, over a century ago, the court stated that official curiosity was the only thing required in order to get a subpoena for documents. And the point I want to emphasize is this, that Hale arrived at that conclusion, imposing very few restrictions on subpoenas, because it thought it only applied to subpoenas for corporations. It thought individual papers would be protected by the Fifth Amendment and the zone of privacy. But of course, 120 years later, the Fifth Amendment is entirely gone, and so now official curiosity justifies subpoenas for corporations and for individuals, whether they're target subpoenas or third-party subpoenas. Now, maybe all that's going to change. Maybe Carpenter signals that the, the court is ready to rethink the law of subpoenas. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. That's a superb answer to the question that I'd asked 20 years ago. How is it possible? And I anticipated this. You anticipated the question, years. and you've brought us up to date. And it's more relevant than ever. And it is the most dramatic example of a subversion of the original understanding of both the Fourth and Fifth Amendments that can be imagined. At the time of the framing, a subpoena for private diaries would have been the quintessential example of a violation of the Fifth and Fourth Amendments. Today, neither amendment provides any protection, both because of the third party doctrine for the Fourth Amendment and because of the extension of Hale to private papers under the Fifth. So a few questions. Uh, why, how could this have happened? Uh, Bill Stuntz has a wonderful article from years ago about how it was a desire to keep the regulatory state up and running during the progressive era that led the court to eviscerate protection for corporate papers that had been at a high watermark in the Boyd case. You couldn't enforce uh, regulatory laws if you couldn't subpoena plate glass uh, receipts, which were the corporate papers at issue in Boyd. But why on earth? Did the court apply that to private papers in the 60s and right. 70s? And why, and why did Justice O'Connor say that private diaries had no substantive Fifth Amendment right. protection? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bill Stuntz, um, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But he was a brilliant interlocutor of both the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. And he did make this very important point, that in Hale, the court was basically faced with the proposition that if it allowed Boyd to stand, the regulatory state would come to a screeching halt. We'd no longer be able to regulate corporations because we couldn't get the documents necessary to uh, determine whether there's been any trust violation or any other violation of all of the regulatory regimes that were set up during the progressive era. Um, but the point I was trying to make is that that decision, which arguably is very justifiable if you believe in the regulatory state, then without much thinking at all got transferred to individual papers, including diaries. And again, I think the answer to your question is there wasn't much thought put into it. We created this body of law, making it very easy to get subpoenas in the corporate context and then without realizing the consequences, Fisher got rid of the Fifth Amendment protection that encompassed individual records. And lo and behold, now, as I said and as you just re repeated, there's no Fifth Amendment protection, and virtually no Fourth Amendment protection for all this personal information that resides with third parties. And I can't really provide any other explanation than that. I think it was, in, in some ways, an unconscious result of 
separate developments of the Fourth Amendment in the corporal context and Fifth Amendment in the, in, the, in the corporal context, and then the court's decision, and I don't think this is a wrong decision necessarily in Fisher, that the Fifth Amendment's not about privacy, it's about preventing coercion. But in the meantime, uh, the court forgot, oops, we are no longer providing any restrictions on subpoenas, and that, that, that applies to individuals as well as corporations. Why is that not a wrong decision in Fisher? Isn't mental privacy a core concern of the Fifth Amendment's uh, concern about the oath ex officio and compelling people under oath to provide answers to questions they yeah, don't know Yeah, I about? think it, that's, that's true, and the court still recognizes that, for instance, in the Hubble case. It recognizes that, but that's only if there's coercion of a mental process, right? The Fifth Amendment only prohibits compulsion of testimony. So in Hubble, the court did recognize that if the subpoena compels in that case, Hubble, to figure out what documents the government wanted precisely to go through all of his file cabinets to find out what the government was after, then that could be a violation of the Fifth Amendment. But the diary, for instance, the government does not compel that to be created. Now, again, the after production doctrine might come into play here. If the only way the government can show this diary came from Jeff Rosen um, is through showing that you were the one who produced it, the subpoena compels that act, and that can implicate the Fifth Amendment. But the actual content of the diary is not protected by the Fifth Amendment because you were not coerced to create it. But if I record in my diary my religious beliefs or my heresies or my uh, 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 blasphemies, and then those are introduced in court against me to prove that I'm a heretic, how is my mental privacy not coerced? Well, I, I agree with you. Your mental privacy, well, you, okay, you threw in that last word. How is your mental privacy not how am coerced? I not, how am I not coerced by my thoughts? How am I not incriminated by my thoughts? How is that you like are a paradigmatic example? Of you are incriminated by your thoughts. Um, and I think there's a very strong argument that there should be a prohibition or at least a significant limitation on getting a diary and similar kinds of documents under the Fourth Amendment or maybe under the First Amendment. Certainly you can make an argument there's a right to intellectual privacy under the First Amendment. But I think the court's probably right that given the language of the Fifth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment does not prevent what you're talking about unless somehow the government coerces you to create the document, which, by the way, I think might be true of tax records, ironically enough. Um, because every, every April 15th, you have to produce information for the government. <clears throat> so, oh, so Boyd was right because it applied to corporate papers. For the Fourth and Fifth Amendments run into each other when it comes yeah, to... Yeah, corporations have no Fifth Amendment right, um, so that was an easy one for the... Well, after Hale, it's an easy one, right? Corporations are not persons. I'm sorry, though, were you asking another question? Yeah. Just that you're saying the corporate papers, ironically, might have more Fifth Amendment protection than private diaries because the government courses their production. Yes, if, if you thought that corporations were persons under the Fifth Amendment, then their, the corporation would have some Fifth Amendment protection, at least vis-a-vis -vis the act of production, and maybe vis-a-vis -vis the creation of the content of the document, if the corporation is required to create that document as part of the regulatory state, which it often is. But of course, corporations are not persons, so that, that prevents corporations from having that protection. I, I was going to ask that, and then please jump in, because we're going to solve this in the, next, the remaining 10 minutes, and Excellent. the document's going to be totally fixed. But would the framers have seen corporations as persons under the Fifth Amendment? I don't know the answer to that question. Maybe someone out here does. Um, it's a Citizens I, United. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, with Citizens United, you could say the court's moving back to the position the corporations are more or less people, but I'm pretty sure the Supreme Court's going to stick with its interpretation of person under the Fifth Amendment, because obviously the First Amendment is different from the Fifth Amendment. Um, and I think there is some colonial history suggests that corporations didn't really exist in colonial times in the sense that we talk about it now. There is some 19th century law that suggests 
Corporations are not natural persons, and the Fifth Amendment was meant to protect testimony from natural persons. But I'm not a, a, a definitely, I'm not an expert on that particular issue. <clears throat> so just on this, I, Breyer mentions, Justice Breyer mentions this in Citizens United, that, that corporations don't exist. They're not pre-existing entities in the same way that individuals are. And so there was a debate at the Constitutional Convention over who got to charter corporations. And there was this concern that giving the national government that power would give it too much power in one place. And so it was going to be done at a state level, uh, so much so that the First Bank of the United States was contested, right? So there, there was a lot of discussion as to what even was legitimate to bring in into being a corporation and who should have the power to even bring it into being. So the statement that Breyer recognizes fully in Citizens United is that that's very different than a natural individual. What I want to get back to, though, is this question of third-party records and subpoena. Because you mention a diary in which you put your religious beliefs or your heresies, whatever they might be. Uh, now let's do that on an iPad, because that's what we use these days as an iPad. Well, under the corporate third-party subpoena powers, right, that you're not the target, you go to the company, there's, there's, there's an erroneous assumption going on that backs both subpoenas and the warrant and the third party, the way that they view third parties. And that's the assumption that it's voluntary in the modern world uh, not to, in fact, uh, engage in regular business activities in which your private information is entrusted to a third party. You cannot bank without it, right? You cannot uh, carry on telephone conversations. You can't keep in touch with your family. You can't uh, keep in touch with your friends without actually having a certain, certain amount of information held by third parties. And the doctrine has not yet recognized how the exact same privacies that would have been protected under the Fourth Amendment and under self-incrimination of the Fifth Amendment are are now no longer protected simply by nature of the fact that we live in a digital world. And, and as you say, that makes no sense as a matter of original understanding or of our intuitions of what uh, the core of privacy is. All right, last question. It's just a small one, and then we have to end to get to the next panel. If uh, Chris, if you were coming up with a way of resurrecting a version of the protection for diaries from subpoenas that the framers took for granted, uh, you suggested you'd located it in the First or Fourth Amendment rather than the Fifth Amendment. What would it look like and what would the contours be? I think there should continue to be a zone of privacy. I mean, you can think about it as concentric circles. I think a diary should be in the middle of those concentric circles and maybe subjected and maybe given absolute protection against any government intrusion. But if not absolute protection, at least this government should have to have a very strong justification in order to get access to a diary. Then outside that circle might be other kinds of private papers. Outside that circle uh, might be, I think, any document surrendered to third party that has personal information. And outside of that circle, corporations, something along those lines. And that could all be based on the idea that the Fourth Amendment, and perhaps the, Fifth, the First Amendment as well, uh, recognizes a zone of privacy. I think it's a very sensible proposition. I, I don't think, I think the court's probably right that it shouldn't come from the Fifth Amendment, but it's clear the Fourth Amendment protects privacy, and it's clear to me that the First Amendment protects privacy, at least to the extent uh, that speech and association interests are implicated. Great. And Laura, I guess a version of the same question to you, because you've parsed the Fourth Amendment so well. If you were coming up with an alternative to the third-party doctrine that would protect private diaries under the Fourth Amendment, what would it 
look like? So Justice Gorsuch, in the most recent case in Carpenter, uh, where they were dealing with cell site location information, where somebody it had been collected for 127 days, the court offered a number of factors that actually can be applied to almost any digital data, you know, which really throws into question and puts courts in a very difficult position of making social judgments about the volume, about the revealing nature, about the retroactivity. Most digital information is retroactive. It tells what you've been doing because it's a record of the past, right? The near perfect recall, the length of the time that it's collected, the precision. These were the factors that the majority decided on. And uh, Justice Gorsuch in um, his dissent, which really I think Carpenter is a five plus one because he also thought it should be protected. He said, what about bailment? What about our traditional understanding of the law of bailment, which is when you generate data or information and a company holds it, they might hold it for a purpose for which you've contracted, but they don't get ownership rights over your data. And if you look at this concept of bailment and property rights, I think there's something to be said for a but-for type analysis, where if it weren't for you, that information wouldn't exist, then you have the right to control that information under a more traditional property-based approach. Wow. Thank you for a tour de force uh, survey of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.